do you need to rush off? No, I've got nowhere to be until next Friday evening. <laughs> Friday over. <well. laughs> got a few conversations to have. Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. I was telling Ali before you guys hopped on that I'm doing the optimal sleep duration study <laughs> on this. So yeah, it's, uh, it's working. Yeah, but that's the first job. That's one of the benefits of knowing all these terms. So just being lazy and sleeping in is now the optimal yes. sleep. Tim always talks about microdosing on caffeine, which is also known as having, having a, a cup brew. of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or we can, we can be intermittent fasting, which we used to call skipping breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I forgot breakfast. <laughs> what did, I actually wrote this down for you, but, but the failures of self-medication, which I just think is such a great phrase. Um, no one ever talks about I'm... the successes of self-medication, <laughs> do they? <laughs> well, it's got the reason we keep doing it means that... Something's working, right? Like, <laughs> there's a reason we continue. Welcome to the studio. This is actually the first time that I've interviewed three guests uh, in the same conversation. So, Dan, welcome. Thank you, Ellie. Uh, Dan, welcome. I've also got Tim. Hi, Ellie. How are you? And Ben, great to have you here. G'day, Ali. Great to be here. We're going to talk about resilience. What is resilience? How do we safeguard against resilience? Uh, what does it actually mean? And certainly from your lived experience, um, but also connected to a book that's come out that uh, the three of you have co-authored together called The Resilience Shield. And it's a timely book and a really important book. Um, I think at any point in time, but certainly through the experiences that we've been going through at the moment. I want to start by posing a question and throwing to you, Dan. Right, One of the stories right at the start of the book is you share about the contrast between combat life, um, having been in the SAS and coming back to more civilian life and how you found there was a big divide between the two. In combat life, there were situations that you needed to face that you found you could deal with, but it was coming back into the civilian life that things changed. Can I get you to talk about that experience and the divide that you, that you found? Yeah, absolutely, Ali. And I think this was at the the start of, of my interest in resilience as a construct. And it came from exactly as you said, having spent a, a big chunk of my adult life working towards uh, becoming a doctor and then becoming a doctor with, with Army Special Operations and the SAS Regiment. And then I was fortunate enough to be with that unit when there was uh, deployments going on in Afghanistan. So I had these really 
unique and, and rich experiences, both positive and negative, in the, the combat environment. So it's very professionally rewarding, very stimulating and engaging. But at that same time, what came with it was responding to my mates in the field who'd been uh, shot or, or had um, been injured by explosive devices and, and on occasions not, not being able to save them. And, and, but yet the, there was a lot of protective factors involved in being part of a, a high-performance team like Army Special Operations or any high-performance team that bolstered all of our resilience through that. And so while we had these, these stressors, there was a bunch of resilience that allowed us to keep going and keep functioning despite these significant life events and and also the distraction of it the pace of life with that um, environment meant that you, you didn't often get the chance to sit and reflect and to digest information or process trauma if you like the machine just kept churning and you just kept moving and so there was a lot of protective factors and it wasn't until I discharged from the army and this is not just me a lot of people that I know ex-service people have a, a really tough transition out of the military and there's a lot of factors at play there but for myself personally I, I had a, a really profound uh, sense of loss of identity, loss of purpose and all these factors with hindsight that were part of being part of the army and part of those particular environments that were bolstering my resilience all of a sudden fell away and all that unprocessed trauma and stress that that I uh, had packed away in the back of my mind over the years started to catch up with me and it, it just seemed paradoxical that I was uh, I was at home with my family I'd never been safer as a civilian doctor I was earning uh, twice the income that I was as a military doctor so I was earning more money I was home with my wife and family and on paper everything looked great but I, it was for the first time I started to really struggle from a, a mental health perspective and get symptoms of what was post-traumatic stress and so that that paradox was what started my interest and, and as we went along uh, Ben and Tim were, were both uh, negotiating and, and establishing themselves out of the military as well and we came together for this resilient shield uh, project but yeah that, that was the genesis of it just that transition that that loss of identity and purpose and then that left left me stripped of resilience and vulnerable to the unprocessed uh, trauma so interesting the the context and I guess that viewpoint of what is it that is around us that bolsters us for the experiences that we have I'd love to, I guess, go backwards uh, before we kind of go forwards and almost, you know, connect in. So each of you have have been have trained and and operated within the SAS. Um, here in Australia, we've we have been watching SAS Australia on TV, and so for a lot of people listening, um, just a, a small glimmer has been coming into into our um, bedrooms, into our bedrooms, into our homes, into our into our living rooms. So my question is, I'm going to ask each of you, what was it about the training, the impact of the SAS that pulled you towards uh, stepping into that? And Tim, I'd love to go to you first. Um, my father served in the SAS regiment and I think there was a little bit of that that came through my childhood running around barefoot in Campbell Barracks when dad was the commanding officer. Uh, it definitely influenced my decision to join the army and whilst I was acutely aware of the SAS in my formative years in uniform, I didn't really start focusing on it until after my time in a light infantry battalion 
and genuinely hand on heart I thought there's got to be something more than this and there really was only one more thing to do for me and that was to attempt SAS selection course. I'd also had some incidental exposure you know to people who were generations older than me, my dad's peer group and cohort but also others that um, I'd had some exposure to through my time in training and then time in a light infantry battalion who were SAS officers and soldiers. And I just found their whole style and demeanour and professionalism really captivating. And I thought, wow, if that's the pinnacle, that's really where I want to be. Ben, I'm going to throw the same question to you. Was there a moment or what was it that pulled you towards that training? I reckon I could probably sum it up in three words, and they'd be Bravo Two Zero. Um, I, I think I saw Top Gun as a very impressionable teenager, and so I was hell bent on being a fighter pilot. And then Bravo Two Zero came out, and I think that switched tack. I, maybe if Legally Blonde had have come out at about the same time, I would have been a lawyer. Now I don't know. I was, I was pretty influenced, I suppose. But um, Dan and I, our father was in the army as well, uh, albeit as a helicopter pilot, not not special operations. So we'd seen. Uh, the kind of life and the kind of real, I guess, adventure. You know, he he used to tell stories about flying survey missions up in Papua New Guinea, actually making maps of these uncharted territories in helicopters and these amazing stories of, you know, him and a surveyor sort of landing in these jungle clearings and uh, sort of hacking back vines and doing these these sort of amazing things. And so I think I was very attracted to, to that sort of lifestyle. I'd seen how much he'd enjoyed it. Um, and I think I was predestined to join the army. I was the the kid running around in cams, which was very different to Dan's experience, actually. Um, but yeah, for for me, I was always going to join the army. And then this Bravo Two Zero was this kind of first sort of insight uh, into you know this idea of special operations, um, and it, it sounded like that next level, like Tim's point about uh, sort of that would be the pinnacle of, of an army and, and particularly an infantry-based experience. And so that was the original attraction for me. And Dan, I'll throw to you, aside from uh, family members in, in the armed forces uh, and an uh, older brother leading the way, um, as, a, as a medical doctor, what was it that, that drew you towards SAS? I... I... Came to SAS a very long way around. As Ben said, I, from the earliest stages, was never going to join the army. I had very different intentions. And when I got out of school, I uh, was pursuing professional triathlon. I I had hoped to make a career of that and failed dismally in that pursuit. To be uh, brutally honest, I just simply wasn't good enough. And and the thought of joining the army never occurred to me till uh, about age 23, when I'd done an exercise science degree, I'd, I'd had a go at this triathlon thing, realised I wasn't going to be the athlete I wanted to be, and started to realise I needed to to uh, grow up and get a real job. And, and so that was the first time I started to look at Army. I'd done okay in my undergrad degree and I sat the graduate medical school admission test, got into that. So I, I got a spot at medical school and the Army had a scholarship scheme to put uh, people through medicine and then you'd serve as a, as a Army doctor. And so I got one of those scholarships, went off to med school still with no real knowledge or intent of special operations and after my first year of medical school which was 2001 ben had gone through and and he'd done selection and was a troop commander with the sas regiment by that time and uh, of course at the end of september uh, sorry in september 2001 the the twin towers fell and it kicked off the afghanistan uh, campaign and 
I was visiting Ben at the end of that year just to, to see him off. He was heading off to Afghanistan with one of the early pushes. And, and it, was, it was only at that time, at the end of my first year of medical school, sponsored by the Army, that I became aware of the SAS Regiment and, um, and met some of the guys and realised they had a doctor with the unit and that, you, you know, the doctor might be able to do the selection course and some of the things. And it was a real light bulb moment. So that was where it, it just clicked to me that that was something that I wanted to pursue. For a lot of people listening, if I were to ask them if they've ever been in a situation where um, a group of people have experienced the same thing and yet their responses to that experience have been very, very different. A lot of people would nod and, and think of a circumstance. Um, and I guess, you know, that in a lot of ways is the one of the key questions that this book, The Resilience Shield, kind of sits on. Ben, I'm going to throw to you, but the opening um, story, a scenario in this book, you really describe a, a time where time stood still, an experience of a, a convoy ambush in Afghanistan. Uh, but what's interesting from this story is not just the story itself, but the the intrigue of looking at the response of, of those that were involved. If I can throw to you to describe that experience and, and what did you see in the, the difference or the range of responses? Thanks, Ali. So the, the experience was our convoy hitting an IED. Now, we, we had a number of IED strikes during that particular tour and this one, I think, was a little profound in that it was our very last uh, mission for that tour. So um, we'd done a night raid. Um, there'd, there'd been some uh, sort of gunfire exchange. It had been a pretty uh, sort of uh, high intensity, high adrenaline sort of moment. And we'd, we'd sort of finished, you know, we'd, we'd loaded back up on these vehicles and we were heading home to what we knew was safety and then ultimately going home after um, sort of four and a half months overseas. And I think I'd let my guard down and, and you know, I, I think it was uh, this real sort of um, uh, sort of anticlimactic sort of moment. We'd, we'd done the hard yards and then all of a sudden this vehicle explodes in front of us. And um, as you mentioned, it, it was uh, very fascinating from a personal psychological perspective, you know, those things like sort of um, auditory exclusion, the noise cutting out and sort of little jumps in your memory and... Um, you know the the formation of different memories afterwards from different people. All these kind of things, I think, I can uh, really see that as as the start of an interest in how people's brains work in trauma and how they react both in the moment and longitudinally. But the thing that um, you alluded to before, it was staggering to see. We were an extremely homogenous group of people. I mean, on paper, we were just cookie cutter versions. We were all fit. We were all mentally tough. We were all prepared. We had the same training. Um, by rights, we should have just all had the same reaction. You know, we were the same human being. And yet there were such markedly different uh, responses. We had people who were overtly elated. They were actually at the top of their game, despite the fact that there's broken and wounded friends around. There's a really active threat. You know, it was a really high-stress situation. Um, they they were, were sort of on top of their game because of that. Um, there are a whole bunch, you know, the majority of people were, were getting on with, with business. They were doing the work. And then there are a couple who were really in bits. And so it was that kind of situation, uh, both in the moment and what we saw people's reactions um, for a, a period afterwards, uh, combined with the, I guess, the more intimate knowledge of, of what Dan was going through and a couple of our other mates that really got us fascinated. This idea of resilience, being able to deal with these sort of stressors, it can't just be about 
physical fitness or mental robustness because we all had that stuff. There had to be other bits to it. And so that was what got us very interested in trying to unpack and work out, well, what is a more comprehensive model of resilience and how can we get better at it so we can be that person who's either elated or relatively unaffected by these extreme stressors? Could I write you a song? Tell you how much you mean to me And there's something about kind of sitting in that question of what's different, what's behind it, um, but that's also kind of taken from that question, but also then the research and the culmination in, in writing a book. So there's a, there's a journey and experience in that as well. Um, Tim, I'm going to go to you. When we look at resilience, it's a word that for... I think most people listening, if not everyone, when they hear it, they'll nod their head and go, yes, yep. And we have a sense of most of us will go, yep, and I'd like more of it, please. <laughs> but in societal kind of sense, we don't necessarily put it under a microscope or understand what it is. So how do you define resilience? What What is this thing where people go, we need more of it? It's very overused and very underdefined and that was part of our struggle actually when we were first burying ourselves in the literature was to work out well is resilience something you have before you encounter a stress event or is it something you get through the course of a stress event nearly as a byproduct or an outcome of the stress event and one thing we know is that in order to show some resilience you have to confront adversity and our conclusion to that was it's actually a bit of both you can prepare yourself, be more resilient ahead of a stress event, but the way that you reframe your perspective through the stress event, the physiological changes that happen and the psychological changes that happen through that period of adversity also creates more resilience. And so as we looked at the evidence-based model that we have in the Resilience Shield, it was important that we linked it back to proof. We didn't want to write a book that just said, once upon a time, we were three guys who spent time in a special operations unit and we did this therefore you should do it too. Um, we really went deep into the literature to come up with the model and really the model of resilience which has been proven now by the University of Western Australia who are our research partner recognises that to be resilient there's an innate component, um, part nature, part nurture, genetics and epigenetics. There's the mind layer, the first foundation um, layer that is truly changeable that recognises, sure, the need to be determined and gritty, but also to demonstrate mindfulness and meditation techniques to flush the nonsense out of your brain. Uh, body, not surprisingly, comprising principally sleep, diet and exercise. There's a social layer, the importance of social support networks to um, making sure that we don't uh, dive into a period of vulnerability or an extended period of vulnerability. And linked into that is... Um, the need not to be lonely. Loneliness is an epidemic, according to Vivek Murthy, the US Surgeon General. Uh, on top of that, there's the professional layer. If we aren't great at our job, it's likely to bring more stress to our life. And the bonus layer that we talk about is adaptation. If you're broadly resilient in all of those other layers, adaptation recognises your ability to do things that you never previously thought possible to confront um, situations that maybe weren't predictable, that were unknown and unknowable, but get a really good result. So it's it's not just that whether we have it in a moment or you can prepare for it, and and those six elements are are really 
uh, powerful and, and all-encompassing and a really core cool part of the book. I want to start by almost looking at the relationship with stress. So again, by nature, the word stress can make us stressed, <laughs> can, can have us that kind of feeling. Um, my role being a psychologist, I know 15 years ago, I was peddling the, the current science at the time that was stress is bad. It is not a good thing. Uh, we know it's connected to heart attacks or heart disease and so don't have it. And so there, I think, is still an element of that, even though the science has changed. Dan, I'm going to go to you about... How do we consider or what's our relationship with stress? Because I think the stress and resilience conversation need to go hand in hand. Yeah, it's an excellent point, Ali. And I think the rhetoric 15 years ago was we need to reduce all stress. Stress is the issue. Let's reduce stress. And and it seems that the discussion swung completely in the opposite direction now to ignoring stress and building resilience. Let's become resilient against the stress. And and as you said, stress seems to have negative connotations. When we think of stress, we immediately think it, it's a bad thing and we need to reduce it. But we know that, as Kim just said, without, without stresses, we can't demonstrate resilience. Without stress, we can't grow, we can't thrive, and we can't evolve. Stress is, is absolutely necessary for us to optimise ourselves and evolve as, as human beings. And, and in the book, we talk of the resilient stress scales, which is exactly as it sounds. You've got a set of scales. On one side, you've got stress. The other side, you've got resilience. And you want to keep those in balance or stacked in the direction of resilience. It's when they, they overstack in the, the direction of stress and tip out in that. Uh, that's where you start to have either. And that's physical or mental uh, health. You can, you can have a bad outcome. But there's also, and, and you will have come across this, Ali, the, the Yerkes-Dodson stress performance curve, and so which talks to if you don't have any stress in your life, you, you won't perform optimally because you're not primed. Your body systems aren't primed. You're not mentally primed. There's an optimal point where you've got the right amount of stress stimulus to perform at your best. And then if you push past that, you go into overwhelm and you start to not perform as well. So look, stress is absolutely fundamental to our growth. And there, there is the, the ability to decrease, and we talk about the perceived stress and the view we take on things. And, and we're absolute advocates of, of not catastrophizing in our brain and creating unnecessary anxiety around what is an absolute stressor. We can put this perceptual stress bubble around it. And if you can shrink that down, that's great. But uh, certainly embracing stress and building resilience against stressors is a, a real, really positive thing. So a little bit of stress is necessary and a good thing. Uh, shrinking down perceptual stress bubbles is equally as good and then what's left of the stress once you've shrunk down the perceptual stress build resilience against that to keep your resilient stress scales in balance Ben, I'm going to throw to you um, and potentially put you on the spot here but how did your relationship with stress go through in the process of writing and researching this book to other authors <laughs> and sometimes I think when we dive into this it is that mirror for ourselves so what's how did your relationship oh, with stress go I'm curious on how you're going to answer this it's a great question <laughs> we've never had that one before Ellie asked me I know 
<laughs> it is a great question and it's really pertinent because I guess for two things. One, this book in many ways is us trying to work this stuff out. So we're absolutely stoked and we are really humbled and delighted to be getting awesome feedback to saying that's resonating across a bunch of different areas. But in many ways, you know, when people joke about this being a self-help book, that's almost exactly what it was. It was us trying to help ourselves. And so the relationship with stress, I think for me personally, um, through the, the journey, so understanding a bit more about it, even just that knowledge can help reframe that narrative. And the big thing that I'm really benefiting from is that sort of change in focus and identity from victimhood. If everything is focused on this idea of stress as a bad thing and we've got to remove stress, then it's kind of a very passive thing. This is something that's happening to us. We're on the back foot and we've, we've got to try and fend it off. The idea of building resilience, on the other hand, is a very active thing. And we get this narrative of ourselves as a survivor or, you know, a warrior, if you like. And, you know, the, these ideas, we chose the, the nomenclature of the shield very deliberately. But through the the um, writing process with, with these two gangsters, you, you know, there's that old adage, never go into business with a, a mate or a, a family member. Certainly never write a book with a mate or a family. <laughs> or both, yeah. Or both. But it was fantastic. We, I reckon, we had a couple, we, we wrote the book in separate chapters and then tried to smash them together and, and get it in what hopefully is a, a nice single voice. And the very first couple of sessions, we, we're, I don't know if we're ego driven, we're, we're sort of not short of self-confidence in terms of our own efficacy. And so it did tend to go to these little, no, nope, that sentence should say happy, no, it should say glad, you know, this sort of thing. And very early, Tim called it out and said, look, this A is pointless and B is almost the antithesis of what we're trying to preach here. So very much this idea of uh, looking at at sort of picking your battles and where you devote your emotional energy, which um, we we sort of, I guess, rediscovered or or deepened our appreciation of stoicism through this process. Um, But also this topic of ego, which um, Tim uh, was, was very much inserting in this that uh, you know, ego, I think, is a big part of this idea of resilience. And if we're too tied up in our own ego, then I think we can make ourselves fragile and can make ourselves open to a lot of stressors that if we can take a step back and get over ourselves a little bit, um, then just simply disappear. And and for me personally, I think that writing process was very helpful in, in sort of doing just that, that there is no point blowing up a relationship with one of my best mates and my brother um, just because I, I think my sentence is better. Which, incidentally, it generally <laughs> was. But when you think about, you know, was the writing process stressful? It, it wasn't. It was good stress. I think um, a couple of observations. We did recognise that we needed to shake the ego of working out whose vignette was better um, because we just wanted to write the best possible book. Um, in doing that, we actually had a great social support network across the three of us where we did so show some gratitude, we were able to share things, there was plenty of active listening and all of those are themes that you'll encounter in the book. And then, of course, once we signed a publishing agreement with Pan Macmillan, we're on their timeline. But that didn't really tip us over into profound levels of stress because we were very well organised. We would say, don't use the word busy, use the word focused, and that's exactly what we were. We were absolutely committed to a timeline. We held ourselves accountable to the timeline. There was plenty of mutual support um, to assist if indeed one person was struggling with a concept or you know, just getting buried in other things and distracted from the book. So I think through the, through the journey of writing, um, a lot of the themes of resilience 
absolutely came out in in this um, you know yeah in the author's journey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and sometimes I think a deadline means it gets done right. Otherwise, you continue to tweak and change. Um, and it might be a different podcast, Tim, where I'll ask you how Ben coped with stress. But we'll do that <laughs> another time. How he, how he <laughs> copes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The benefits of self-medication. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. We were talking before that one of the um, one of the phrases it was kind of a smaller piece in the book but i've taken is the failures of self-medication but where might be the benefits is, <laughs> right. is uh, what we were talking to tim i might stay with you around the metaphor of the shield so uh the model around these six elements but the metaphor of the shield is a really important one because again not only do we think of resilience as binary we either have it or we don't um, we we think of it um, internal in terms of we we've either um, are born with it or we 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 don't and yet there can be these things where I was able to cope with the circumstance three months ago but now it's pulling me apart um, and is you know what's what's going on there so can you talk to me a little bit about the metaphor of the shield and why that became an important metaphor for this book the shield is for the greater good of all, said a Spartan king. And we really love the iconography of a shield for a range of reasons. And if you dwell on that quote, that the shield is for the greater good of all, it nearly says everything in, um, in combat. A shield not just protects you, but protects everyone else. Arguably, certainly in the Spartan time, in the phalanx, it was more important that your shield protected everyone, that it was part of the integrity of the phalanx. It uh, leaves one hand free to do something else. Your shield can also be used as an offensive weapon, not just a defensive weapon. And one of the things that we really thought was pretty special, certainly in the Spartan culture, was the shield was passed from the maternal side of the family. So a mother handed the shield to her Spartan warrior son before they went off to battle. And you'll know from popular movies that... Um, the line that she gave her Spartan warrior son was return with your shield or on it. That is, come back successful in battle, but the only disgrace in returning is if you've dropped your shield. It's better to die and be carried back on your shield than to drop your shield in battle and let that phalanx and all of your other uh, warrior brothers down. Yeah, that's... Yeah, really powerful, that sense of having it with you, the protection that it not only protects you, it protects others. Because I think the other narrative that can go with this is it feels selfish. I just need to suck it up and get along, get on with things. Yeah. And yet that, that shield of protecting others is really um, a powerful message. Well, you think about it also, how does that practically apply? It's not just loose iconography, but in order for you to really give great support inside your social network, in order to, for you to be a great friend, family member and colleague, you need some form of resilience. Who's going to go to help to someone who doesn't have a really sound base of resilience? And so in that in that regard, you know, working on your own resilience to be a better you know, father, mother, partner in general, friend or colleague, super important. And, and probably the other thing that I'd add in terms of the layers that exist in, inside that resilience shield, uh, we, we love the, um, the story of a carpet on Chicken Street in Kabul where the strength of the carpet and the value of the carpet is derived from the underside, from the weave, the knots per square inch. And so we don't talk about 
the layers of the shield like you can just do without a layer if you decide, oh, that one, I don't like it. Because if you zoom right in, if you took a magnifying glass to the shield, you'd see that right up close, it's all of these individual strands of resilience that comprise innate body, mind, social, professional. And to do without a layer or to have a layer diminished or vulnerable means that you compromise your whole shield. And again, that's um, there is a part of me going, oh, bugger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, right. Actually, I'll just work on the one that I, I <laughs> like. One that you like, yeah. <laughs> but it's so true because we know if one of those elements, and I think, again, that tightness of the weave, the, the, the possibility that kind of sits sits with those so the six that you've unpacked are innate what have we got that kind of we were were born with mind body social professional and adaptation in order to um, utilize the time I'd I'd like to zoom in on two of those in particular because I think there's so much in all of those and so many um, really practical things we can dive into the two I want to highlight um, are mind and adaptation so Dan if I go to you around that um, the element or the level in the shield around mind what is it that we can be doing practically in order to build up a level of resilience in our in our mind in our thinking It's a good question, Ali, and a very important one and something that as a part of our Resilient Shield uh, construct, we've, we've got a government research grant and we're in, in partnership with the University of Western Australia. We've got a research survey that we've got over 6,000 responses to. And what we've found, we've got a, a PhD psychologist from the Uni of WA crunching the data. And it has showed us overwhelmingly that the mind layer is the most important one to focus on. It's the best bang for your buck with regards to building an overall resilience, which is important for time-poor time people. I mean, I think we all know that all of these layers, if we do them well, we will be more resilient. It kind of makes sense. But where do we focus our energy? And, and so mind layer is exponentially more important than the other layers. They're all important, but mind, if you, you've got to get, uh, you know, bang for your buck and what moves the needle most, it's that. And then when you look at what you can be doing within the mind layer, there's, there is a whole bunch of things and most people will be doing some of this inherently and be unaware of it. Uh, you know, at, at the core of it, we look at things, practices like mindful, mindfulness meditation or any meditative practice, a very deliberate, focused uh, intent of, of building your, your mind muscle, if you like, and that focus. And we know overwhelmingly now the literature and the evidence and the functional brain studies support the fact that a meditative practice changes the way our brain fires, it changes our brain structurally over time, makes us better at coping with stress, it reduces our chronic cortisol, stress hormone levels, makes us makes us more resilient. We've got the science behind this. It, it increases our pain threshold, so it decreases our pain perception. There's a whole bunch of great literature there. So mindfulness meditation, if you had to... In, in my opinion or in our opinion, if you had 10 minutes, three days a week to dedicate to something that would improve your resilience, it, it, it would be download a, mind, a mindfulness meditation guided uh, guided mindfulness app and, and get to it. Just short, sharp interventions. Once again, the studies show us move the needle on uh, resilience there. But but then there's all other sort of practices and and religion falls under mindfulness, things like your, your mindset working more towards a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. 
having hobbies that you enjoy, ideally outside of work, where you can tap into what's known as a flow state, where you can get absorbed in the activity. It's a, a challenging activity, but it's not overwhelmingly difficult or too simple that you can't engage. And those, those states that you can enter into where you're truly present and you're engaged and you can lose track of time and the sense of self and these bits and pieces, that's, that's a flow state and it's a pseudo meditative state and that bolsters your, your mind layer. So there's a, a variety of, of things within that mind layer uh, that are very, very positive. But um, as I said, if you had to deliberately focus on that, uh, our recommendation would be, would be get a guided meditation app and, and do that five to ten minutes three times a week and, and the, the literature tells us that that really makes a difference. Again, it's that dedication of time, the focus um, and, and the intention that sits behind that. One of the things, and you, you mentioned it, is around spirituality uh, that really kind of jumped out from, from your book when you talked around kind of mind. If I think I were to ask 50 people, first three words that came to mind around SAS, I'm not sure spirituality would come up. And yet there's, there's you know, a sense of that kind of the, the power connection purpose um, that is really intriguing to me. Ben, if I go to you, when you, this kind of concept of the connection between spirituality, mind and resilience, um, what, have, what have you kind of learnt through the research and the interplay of those? Mm. I, I think it's massive and it, it's funny, it's probably a bit of a misnomer. There's an old adage that says there's no atheists in a foxhole. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I do think there is something about the combat experience that does make people uh, sort of search for something bigger. Um, I actually reckon, um, you know, whether there's atheists in a foxhole, there's a whole bunch of artists in a foxhole. One thing I noticed is really interesting is that every time we deployed, um, people would start writing poetry, people would start playing music, people would start writing short stories or drawing or painting. You know, there's that kind of, um, I think, link, to the, the sort of warrior culture, which is, has been um, sort of there for, for thousands of years. Um, so I think this idea of spirituality is really important, and in whatever way it manifests, whether that is through formal re religion and theology, or whether it is just through this idea of a connectedness with other people, um, even down to that very minute level, the kind of um, Japanese idea of wabi-sabi, just being aware of the beauty in everyday ordinary objects. And I think there's a wonderful virtuous circle in terms of this mind layer. One thing I've found really powerful in my own life is the idea of gratitude. Um, and in particular, not just the, the big, I'm grateful to live in Australia, I'm grateful to live in Perth, I'm grateful for my health and family. I am for all of those things. But the things I've found really interesting is trying to find the smallest, tiny thing that I'm, I'm grateful for every day. And uh, you know, it might be just recently it was waiting for the train and the, the way the light played through the, the train station roof and sort of speckled up the dust. You know, these little snapshots, I think, A, make you recognise the beauty around you, but B, do help you draw back into that moment, become more mindful. So I think there's a massive connection between that, that spirituality and uh, sort of mindfulness and into resilience. And I think to answer your question about the, the kind of, perception uh, of, of SAS guys talking about these sorts of things. Um, I think we're missing a trick. I think mindfulness and meditation has probably got a, a PR problem uh, when I reckon even five years ago, if you'd spoken to me about meditation or have gone straight to, you know, mung beans, incense and, and orange flowing robes sort of thing. Um, to Dan's point, it was really the research for us. 
uh, and the just the hard sort of neuroscience, the, these neuroplastic um, effects from meditation. This is not about sort of some fluffy esoteric concept. This is gym training for your brain. This is making your brain much more efficient, much more able to deal with stress, put your prefrontal cortex in the charge in charge of your decision making instead of your amygdala under stress. Um, it's about being able to focus on on a single task with laser like clarity. These are the kind of, uh, I guess, vehicles that I think we should be uh, talking about meditation and mindfulness in, particularly to a kind of more martial audience or, you know, first responders or kind of Aussie blokes who might be, be a bit dismissive of these kind of things. So for me, that that was the big sort of, uh, I guess, takeaway and, and the big realisation in looking at these concepts of spirituality, meditation and mindfulness as part of resilience. That it needs a better PR pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really key. Um, and even the the interesting point about creativity and and how closely linked that that can be an expression or an outlet uh, sometimes, whether it's through meditation. I know plenty of people go, I tried meditation once, it didn't work, I don't like it. <laughs> but what's what might be the outlet or the way um, if those that are listening are sitting in a place of going, yeah, I'm mentally I'm, I'm struggling and I think we're hearing that here in Australia in particular through the impact of the last 18 months. Um, I think there's not been a single workplace, there's not been a single person that has actually gone, what's this all for? What am I doing? What's that sense of meaning and, and the importance of us really looking at our, our mind, uh, meditation and, and creativity can be an outlet for that. The other one I want to would love to put a spotlight on is adaptation. Um, because again, there is, I think, a human nature, and I certainly know in me there is a part of me that didn't like that that was on the list, um, if I'm really honest, because I wanted certainty to be there. <laughs> this sense of and needing the importance of adapting to the environment. Tim, if I'll go to you around a particular story that you share in the book, and it was a takeover of the MV uh, Pongsu, the uh, Korean vessel. And in particular in that story, um, there's an element that you weave in, you finish the story on, where you talk about the intelligence that you had received, that uh, that on this vessel there was this an array of antennas at the back of the boat indicating that there's likely to be special forces on and therefore we needed to be mindful and aware at that. Turns out that there was a washing line with, uh, with undies and, and not the case. And yet the, the story and the experience of going yeah, of um, taking over that that vessel, the way that it's described in the book, really speaks to this and needing to adapt in the moment um, to to what you are kind of faced with and dealing with. Can you speak to, I guess, this experience and and what it taught you around um, adaptation? Yeah, I mean, adaptation is your ability to do things that you never thought you'd need to do. And, um, you know, boarding a North Korean Pong uh, drug vessel, the Pong Su, is, is nearly metaphoric. I mean, there are many people that have similar experiences. The, the story of that particular operation is there was not anything going in our favour. We wanted three times the amount of people to board the ship. We were told that we could only have one third. We wanted a completely different plan not to go aboard a Navy frigate and run down the Pongsu. Why? Because the weather was dramatically against us. Sea State 6 over that weekend. When we closed up to the Pongsu, we didn't have the sort of boarding equipment we wanted. We didn't have our preferred helicopters. We had one helicopter that wasn't one that we'd ever practiced with. We had two rigid hull inflatable boats that were very different to the ones that were used in the SAS regiment. 
And then to your point, yeah, before we launched aboard the vessel, we got a couple of pieces of intelligence that indicated that expect North Korean special forces to be on board, expect them to repel the attack, and the presence of that antenna array was nearly proof that they would be on board. Now, we'd never boarded that vessel before. We'd never used those helicopters and boats in concert with each other. We hadn't done it in Sea State 6, 80 nautical miles off, off Newcastle. But, but... All the constituent parts of our wider resilience package from knowledge, skills, attributes, belief and determination, our whole professional focus led us to being able to successfully execute that mission. And it's no different to someone who is now changing a tyre in the rain. To be able to put, and maybe they've never changed a tyre before, but to be able to put all of the little bits of their um, resilience shield, all of those layers to bear in doing something that they didn't think they would have to do. The story really is punctuated beautifully by the anecdote of Richard Harris, who was the anaesthetist in the cave diving rescue of the Thai soccer team. Now, Richard was a doctor, an anaesthetist. He was also a cave diver. Maybe he'd visited Thailand before, but he'd never done them all together. And uh, there's a little bit of an experiment in adaptation, and uh, that story talks to Richard being able to put all of his knowledge, skills and attributes to bear inside that really unique operating environment to get a great result. And I think, uh, I love that story. Um, I think that's super special and really the pinnacle of adaptation where you'll do things because you're really well prepared to do those unknown things. mentioned before that you've been involved in the SAS Australia um, TV series, the last the last three series, no doubt been at the front line of seeing how people have adapted to the, that environment. Um, what is it that, what were some of the, the skills or the key, again, if I go really practical, uh, what did you see people doing who adapted quickly or quicker than others um, in that environment? I think there's a few fundamentals there that it's been fascinating to watch that happen in that context, having watched it happen as a doctor in support of the actual SAS selection course and then going further back being a, a candidate on that course and, and completing the course myself. So seeing it through these different lenses has been interesting and I think at the core of successful people uh, across the, the spectrum of military and then the, the recreation of that course for a TV context at the core of the same fundamentals and that is a strong mental resilience. So clearly there's a physical component to the course 
and the same with the military and the uh, the SS Australia TV show. The, the more physically fit you are, the, the better you can deal with some of the stressors. And, and that's, that's fundamental to the resilient shield model. That's why the body layer is is a um, you know fundamental component of our model as well. But but the physical fitness isn't enough to get you to the end of the course. Uh, it, likewise, extrinsic external motivations aren't enough to get you to the end of end of the course. You you have to have a strong internal locus of control, strong internal motivation, a drive, a growth mindset to be the best version of yourself you can be, rather than a fixed mindset. The whole oh you know I failed at that, therefore I'm a failure type thing. You've got to be wanting to keep pushing and keep going in the face of adversity to keep driving yourself forward, uh, intrinsically motivated to push through being cold, tired, hungry. And the thing that I find really fascinating is you look at a group of recruits, be it at the start of an SAS selection course or the start of the, the TV show, and we, we, we do their medicals, you do the psych screen and we get together as a team and have a look and and give uh, two bobs worth as to how we think they might go, but you, you're always wrong. And it's the same in the SAS selection course. You look at the 100 recruits that line up or candidates, and, and you'll look at the ones that you're drawn to and you think that that person looks like an SAS soldier. And you're almost universally wrong because you can't see uh, into the core of them until you strip away all that, um, that, that external stuff and get them down to that, that core psychological resilience and that's the thing that's going to keep them going so yeah i guess that's been a really interesting component and and watching big tall strong hundred kilo blokes all away in both the courses and then seeing you know leaner warrior guys and girls uh, get to the end just based purely on that grit that growth mindset and that psychological resilience we are chatting in October of 2021 here in Australia. Um, we are about to be faced with more uncertainty. We've, we've experienced this um, for the last 18 months, but certainly workplaces, uh, different states making pathways in and out of lockdowns, border closures, those sorts of things. And I think the general feel is people are really craving certainty, um, but at the moment aware that we are living in environments of uncertainty Ben, if I go to you, what are the conversations around that are connected to the work that you've looked into, the research, the conversations around the resilience that you believe we need to be elevating, having more of in mm. the coming 18 months? The, this whole idea of uncertainty and complexity, I find an absolutely brilliant way of looking at the world. Um, the conversations that I sort of encourage people to be having, the first one is a recognition that um, you can't predict the future. So this is simple complexity theory. There is no way, even if it looks the same as the last lockdown or looks the same as the last outbreak or looks the same as something you've done a thousand times before, in a complex adaptive system, the outcomes can be very different uh, depending on a whole raft of factors. So let's let go of trying to predict the f future. And um, the, the second thing is that life is not fair. It sucks. Like a lot of this, uh, you know, we're sitting here in Western Australia and... You know, I can't remember the last time we were in lockdown and it's massively different for people, you know, only a couple of thousand kilometres away. There is no rhyme or reason. We need to let go of this idea of fairness and, you know, it's not fair. Toddlers always whinge it's not fair. We would argue really resilient people and, and this is the stoic thinking, uh, except that that's exactly right. It isn't fair. But 
This is back to this idea of adaptation. What we need to be able to do is turn our skills towards this next challenge. And there's a wonderful sort of distinction that a guy called James Stockdale made. So he was an American fighter pilot shot down over North Vietnam, spent four years in Hanoi Hilton. And he was asked of his experience, could you pick who was going to live and who was going to die out of the, the prisoners of war? And he said, oh, yeah, that's easy. The people who were going to die were the optimists. And you think that doesn't make any sense. Surely you should have that that sort of uh, mental model. But he was sort of uh, really making this distinction about this blind optimism. So this idea that, and he'd use the term, uh, we'll be rescued by Christmas. And then Christmas rolls around, we'll be rescued by Easter. Easter rolls around and then they they die of a broken heart. So he sort of was very famous, in, and I'm going to mangle the quote, but it's something like, you should never confuse the faith that we will prevail in the end, which is absolutely essential with this kind of blind optimism that it's it's all up to, to sort of the someone else. And so it ties in these threads of that locus of control that Dan said, this ability um, to distinguish between the things you can and you can't control, to let go of the things you can't control, like government lockdowns, like pandemic outbreaks, all that sort of stuff, but to really focus on those things that are within your control and then get on the front foot do not define yourself as a victim. Define yourself as someone who is proactively working on the things that you can control. That kind of mindset to me is about the only way of dealing with this kind of wonderful, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world in which we're existing. Sitting in that of, um, yeah, sitting in the belief that it's going to be okay in the end but also not having that line of continuing to be disappointed along the way when, when in that hope of, of, of hitting certain milestones is yeah. is a really important distinction the again i, I keep talking about stoicism because i think it's so profound as it comes to this sort of idea but um, marcus aurelius the famous roman emperor and stoic um, has a saying we love uh, get active in your own rescue you know, have that positive attitude, but don't outsource it. Get that internal locus of control. Don't be a victim. Get active in your own rescue. You know, do those things you can to build your resilience and to deal with this complex, unfair, wonderful world that we live in. Messy and possibility all sit side by side. So get active in your own rescue. I think that's amazing. The Resilience Shield is um, is such a powerful book. The research, the work that you put into it, the model and these six elements are really, really key. And it's you've combined not only the experiences, the stories, the research, but also the practicality practicality really beautifully so i'm definitely going to be encouraging people to to reach out and grab a copy of the book um, i would love to continue this conversation but i'm really conscious of timing the name of this podcast is called standout life so i'm going to ask each one of you the same question um, and the question is when you hear that term what does it mean to you to live a standout life dan i'd love to throw to you first I think living in accordance with your values is, is a, a standout life. And the, the other principle that, that I have, and when I reflect on what, what my greatest fear is, I think my greatest fear is dying wondering. So leaving a, a stone unturned or looking back after a period of my life when a window might have shut and wondering, you know, mate, could I have done that if I had have tried harder? So I think living a standout life is, is being true to your values and, and not dying wondering if there's something that you feel is your calling, 
go after it. And, and then that plays into the whole, it's, you know, it's not the critic who counts, don't listen to other people's opinions, live your best life and, and all of that sort of uh, those philosophies. Tim, I'll throw to you. On the inside cover of the book, we have a James Elroy Flecker extraction from his poem, The Golden Road to Samarkand, and there's a line in that poem say, saying, go always a little further. It's not about heroic changes, big dramatic differences in your life. Just do something that incrementally makes you and others around you better and do that every day. And ultimately, in the aggregate, you'll become a far better person and live a far more fulfilling life. Love it. Always go a little further. And Ben? I think this idea has changed for me. And I talk in the book about, um, you know, my reflections on this idea of status and all that sort of thing. I reckon 20 years ago, a standout life for me would have been associated with achievement and success and and these sorts of things. And there's still an element of that in there, but I think it's become much more internalised. And I come back to something that Dad used to tell Dan and I, that you know, the ultimate measure is, you know, when you're going to sleep at night in those moments where you're just by yourself and you've only got your thoughts, if you're comfortable um, with, with everything that you've done, and, and this links to Dan's point about living by your values, um, then, you know, you've lived a good life. If you can go to sleep with that sort of clear conscience and that satisfaction that you've gone a bit further or that you've lived up to your values, that you haven't let people down, uh, to me, increasingly, that is the, the metric of, of a standout life. Dan, Ben, Tim, it's been such a delight um, chatting with you and thank you for bringing this conversation to Resilience to the Forefront. Thank you for packaging it in a way um, that's accessible but also calls us to not drop a weave, not drop a thread, um, which is, is also the challenge as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ali. Thanks, Ali.
to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.